This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Amy, that's Lisa, and we're just two girls that want to have a conversation with you. Dear 16-year-old Andrea. Hey, gorgeous. Dear younger Lauren. Each episode is stories from people. I would deprive myself, weigh myself obsessively. Because I was eating healthy, I couldn't understand that I had a problem with food. Losing my period scared me the most. My story starts when I was around seven. That's when I started to hate my body. Body image is like our inner picture of our outer self. Healthy behaviors play a much bigger role in our health than the actual number on the scales. Internal dialogue can be so powerful and often it's super negative and critical in a way that we wouldn't talk to other people that we care about. When you start to share your story, that gives other people the courage to share theirs. I know you would be proud now of how far you have come in your relationship to food, exercise, and to yourself. I felt freedom. I've gained relationships. I've found my true sense of self-worth. There's one thing I need you to take away from this. You're going to be okay. Life without disordered eating outweighs everything. You're listening to episode one of Outweigh. In this series, we will be discussing eating disorders. People who have struggled with eating disorders or disordered eating will be sharing their story in detail. So please be advised that this content may not be for everybody right now, especially if you're currently in the throes of recovery. Our goal is to make sure that you get the best help necessary for you or a loved one. This podcast should not replace therapy or treatment. To get help, support, or more resources, head to nationaleatingdisorders.org. Okay, so kind of giddy as we hit record and start this journey. Episode one of this series that Lisa and I are calling out way. And just to give y'all a little backstory of how this came about, I was at the hospital with my dad in December 
of 2019, so just a few months ago. And I immediately had flashbacks of being in the hospital with my mom. My mom passed away from cancer in 2014, and my sister and I were her primary caregivers for two years. So a lot that happened in there was very stressful. I didn't know how to process a lot of it, but I had a history with disordered eating and eating disorder, but it never came back during her battle. But the day after my mom died, I was throwing up my food and I did not know why or what. And we'll get into that more when I share my story. But just to kind of get to the point of me calling Lisa, I'm at the hospital with my dad. It's really bad. And thankfully, he's doing better. We've recovered. But the situation was not good. And it instantly took me to a place of trauma. And all my brain could think of was, oh my gosh, last time I was in a traumatic experience, that's what I resorted to. So am I in a better place now? How am I going to handle this? Am I strong enough? And I was just battling back and forth. But really the overwhelming feeling was I felt freedom. And I felt like I'm not going to whatever I was clinging to before, whether it was food for like I would overeat or then I would throw up. And even with my mom, I mean, I'm getting into stuff that honestly, in my mind, it doesn't make sense. And when I explain it to Lisa, she'll help maybe help me with some of my thoughts as we go through it. But long story short, I left the hospital feeling free. And it was because some of the tools that Lisa had given me and just other things I've been working on where I thought, oh my gosh, I want other people to feel this freedom. And how can we do this? Like, I feel so free. So I pick up the phone in the parking garage at the hospital and I call Lisa and I'm like, I feel free right now. I want other people to feel freedom. I want to do, I don't know what this looks like. Maybe we get together in person with people and we have a big gathering and we all talk about it. And then the conversation went back and forth and we're like, okay, wait, maybe it's a podcast. And so here we are. And how brave and amazing is Amy to tell her story, (laughs) to open this up for all of us. I'm like already crying again for like the second time today. It's going to be an emotional four episodes, I think. And I think why I'm getting excited is not because I'm in a place, yes, you're hearing from people you're going to hear throughout the series of people that are on the other side. And I guess I like to believe that I'm on the other side, but I don't want y'all to think that I have it all figured out and I'm there because I've learned, even though I thought I was on the other side, I'm still journeying through it. And I have relied on Lisa a lot. I've even called her while preparing for this series. I've been going through some other stuff where I was trying to stop certain behaviors that I realized were not healthy for me, but I didn't think that they were bad or wrong. But really for me, if I'm truly trying to give myself that freedom and recover, I had to let go of things that were shackles in a sense, but I didn't know they were. And that's what the gray area is about. Oftentimes those of us in the gray area where I was, where Amy, I'm not going to say is, but maybe have some, some tendencies. You don't know you're in it because we haven't opened our eyes to tendencies that are not healthy even if the behavior looks healthy on paper. And going back to Amy's original idea, which was to be in person with a large group and host some sort of event, I'm putting it out there that I hope that we reach enough people that this becomes that one day and we can hold space for more people to just show up as they are without fear, without limits, and get, a, if not a full feeling, a taste of that freedom of just living aligned. Yeah, 
And really, this podcast is for everyone. I think we're two females, and my podcast is predominantly female, and I feel like this is a space where females tend to open up. But if you're a male listening to this, amazing. However you identify, you are welcome. And yes. we know that oftentimes gender details can get in the way of people finding help. And we all go through this. It is actually universal. The disordered eating or eating disorders don't discriminate. So whatever. However old you however, are. <laughs> yeah, however old you are, whatever size you are, whatever race you are. But there's, for me, some of it was I'm rewiring my brain. Mm-hmm. And on the Four Things podcast, we've been talking about doing that with gratitude. And you really can, when you focus on something and you do it repetitively, you can reset things. We've mentioned we've got personal stories from real people, and they're about three to five minutes long, people just getting vulnerable, sharing their story. And then everyone also that shared has a letter to themselves so that they would write to themselves when they were in that dark place. And so... I'm most excited for people to hear that because you really are hearing from girls of all types. Not just girls. We hope to expand this beyond. We We are hearing from all humans. Yes, all humans. The stories that we have in this series, Stories for, for, uh, what's it called? Season Season one. one. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, this series, our girls. Happen to be identified as female. Yeah, Yeah. so Lisa's going to share hers. I just kind of set the stage of what you can expect to hear a little bit of, but then we'll get into our interviews with experts and therapists, and then topics that Lisa and I just think are important to talk about. And I never knew things I was saying to people or I was receiving from people Mm -hmm. were harmful to me. And now that I am aware of it, painfully aware almost, I catch myself like, oh my gosh, don't say that. Or, oh my gosh, don't take too much of what you just received from somebody Mm -hmm. because that is not where you get your worth at all whatsoever. And back to the rewiring of the brain, we'll get into this, like a specific book that I read called Brain Over Binge. I think ultimately for me, I started dieting too young and put my brain into this weird pattern of thinking I was in starvation mode. And that led to me binging, which led to me thinking I overate, which led to me purging. And then I would go to different therapists and they would tell me, oh, well, it's it's because your dad left and you're filling a void with food. And I'd be like, okay, but now what? But I didn't realize the pattern I was setting myself up on. And that was what, I don't want to age myself, but 30 years ago or something. So we'll get into our personal stories for sure. And Lisa's going to share hers think, in a second. I think um, you bring up such a good point here that as we hear from different experts and we hear different stories, we are not here to tell you what the best plan of healing is. We are here to share that what you are experiencing is not something to be shameful of and that and tell you that you are not alone. So I love that Amy has found freedom in somebody seeing her and not just another therapist saying it's because your dad left. It's because your dad left. Because for Amy, that doesn't resonate. But when Katherine Hansen, the the author of Brain Over Binge, said that's not what it's about. This is about dieting too young. That struck a chord with Amy. And yes. when you, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, when you felt validated, when you felt seen, when it hit, like, felt like you hit the jackpot on, yes, that's when it began, only then could you begin to heal. 
So whatever your jackpot, jackpot moment yeah, is. Totally. Of, yes, that's what I feel. That's what it is for me. We hope to inspire some light to say that, like, there's a million, there's no one reason that an eating disorder happens. It's not just the desire to be thin. For many people, it is the desire to be thin. But we believe that there are different reasons that it happens, and there are different healing paths to get out of it. But what we are all experiencing is what we want to really expose so that we can begin to release that shame, to find the next step into you being your greatest you. And I think that right now we should get into how language matters with body image, because I think back to, I mentioned after my mom passed away and my tendencies came back and I was restricting, but then eating, but then throwing up. And I got down to the lowest weight probably I've been in forever and got attention from that. But that fed, even though that's not what it was about, it became about that because then, you know, I remember one comment specifically, and I know the girl meant no harm, but I remember everything clear as day. I remember exactly what I was wearing, where I was, what we were doing. And she passed me and looked at me and she said, girl, whatever you are doing, I need this plan ASAP. And I just kind of smiled and was like, oh yeah, you know, (laughs) And then carried on. But in my mind, I was like, if she only knew that right now she's complimenting whatever she thinks is happening with my body and it looks really good right now, that I threw up my lunch yesterday and then didn't eat dinner and took a Xanax so I could sleep and like not think about eating, right? So then that gave me some sort of weird validation that that's how I'm supposed to be. Reinforcement. Reinforced it. So then the pattern kept going and I kept, you know, until it couldn't anymore because we need food to live and we need it. It's calories are energy. Like food is not something that we need to be restricting from our lives. And I was, and, and we'll get into more of my story. I know I keep saying that, but I'm just touching on certain things of why language matters. Because for me, she has no idea that that comment whether it's, affected me. Whether it's a quote unquote positive, right? Like you received a intended compliment, whether it's negative to make somebody, you know, hope to motivate somebody into making change, regardless of it being supposed to be positive or supposed to be negative, it always impacts us negatively. So we need to recognize that commenting on people's bodies, whether it's about being pregnant, oh, you don't look pregnant, or oh my God, I can't believe you bounced back so fast or anything like that. Because I've, as, I've, as I talk about this stuff on social media, I hear stories from every age, every walk of life. And for me, I remember, you know, your moment with that woman was I, I was always very thin and all of a sudden I walked into my grandfather, never thought about food, walked into my grandfather's house and he said, wow, your cheeks look fuller. And he actually meant that as a compliment because older people, they, they think that fuller is a positive thing, which is an interesting shift over the last couple decades. But immediately after years of being complimented about, you know, what's your secret? Oh, you have a fast metabolism. I was like, am I gaining weight? You know, is the mirror not showing me what I'm supposed to see? And if that, who am I? Mm -hmm. So how can we be better conversationalists? How can we 
say things to other people that lift them up and don't cause them to spiral mentally, which causes them to take any sort of action. Because you never know the root of somebody's weight loss or weight gain or whatever it may look like. What I was going through, she had no idea the struggles I was having and it, it just fed into it. Or if someone is sick or has something going on, I mean, just for, that's not even what this podcast is about, but honestly, you never know. Just for example, if you comment on someone's weight loss, but they haven't been vocal about a disease that they're battling and they don't want to talk about it. And now suddenly you've commented on their body and they're like, oh, wow, well, I must look sick. Yeah, I must look sick or, okay, well, at least one thing good that's coming out of this disease is that I'm losing (laughs) weight. But there should not be validation in what we look like. And I think we can still compliment our friends and our coworkers and our people that we care about. But what, what adjectives can we use that are um, better? And I was talking to my hair person the other day and we were kind of going through what we were talking about and she used the word radiant. And I thought, gosh, that's such a good one. And she was like, that's what I'm going to start doing. She said, I'm just going to start saying, you look radiant. And it's not a blind compliment, you know? No. It's not just like, oh, whatever. It's like, we are all beautiful. And I think inside we're thinking somebody looks radiant, but the words that come out of our mouths faster than we realize are, oh, you look radiant. Did you lose weight? Like, it's so attached to everything. But the feeling that we see when we see another human that we identify as being beautiful, regardless of what they look like, is radiant. I mean, my favorite compliment to receive is you have great energy. Like that means that I'm showing up as me because I'm putting good stuff into the world and they are feeling it. And we are having a communication, a conversation without even having a conversation. Yeah. So and we're not making it. And I told you this that. when I was on the Amtrak the other day, the women in front of me, I didn't even hear their conversation, but a stranger, a full on stranger passes by and says, oh, I overheard you speaking about weight loss. I have to tell you, I just did blah, 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 blah diet and I lost blah, blah, blah pounds and then like carries on. And the other two women are just like, I don't know what they extracted from it, but I know that could have led to a path of eating disorder or disordered eating for those two women having that conversation. And this woman carried such pride, like it was the most important thing, this message that she could deliver. And I just remember thinking like, we as humans, we're meant to do more. We're meant to help each other more Mm -hmm. than just inject ourselves into conversation to brag about our weight loss. Right. And I think that's another thing you'll learn throughout this series as it organically comes up is we're not going to probably call out diets by name per se, but that were not fans of, how would you want to say it, Lisa? Like of, I have personally had to let go of the diet world and things I wasn't even putting in the diet category. I realized, oh shoot, that is kind of a diet. So I need to let that go for my healing, for my growth. How seriously do I want to take this? And I'll just use this as an example. I never even knew what counting a macro was until recently, but I thought that was actually helping me understand because I had had such disordered thoughts about food and a lot of times would just consume juice all day and think I was doing my body good. That's not the case, but I really didn't know, okay, like what, what is, how much protein should it look like if I have, or how many carbs should I have? So I really got serious about it and was tracking my protein, carbs, all my intake. I didn't think that that was bad. I was still allowing myself freedom to eat whatever, Mm -hmm. but I guess not really because I was tracking it. And then through Lisa's encouragement, I had to let that go. And I had such anxiety around that 
that I let it go. And I remember texting you on Saturday morning and I was already freaking out about the day because somehow this new thing, again, never tracked that stuff before my life. I mean, way back in the day, I know I had done, you know, counted points or whatever, but this was different to me. And yet now all of a sudden I'm clinging to it as if it's like the only thing that I can live by. And just the thought of having to let it go. I didn't know if I could face the day and I had to text you and talk to you about it. And you encouraged me and gave me some good tools. And we'll go over some of that too later. But I started even seeing myself differently where I think that following Monday I was at work and we took a show picture Uh, Like we had an artist in and we all got on the stage and took a picture. And then I saw the picture and I was like, oh, and I sent it to you. And I was like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. Ever since I stopped counting, I am gaining weight. Mm -hmm. And what is happening? And you just, you were very sweet about it, but basically told me, Amy, you look the same. (laughs) Yeah, no offense, same. No offense, (laughs) but you look exactly the same. But in my mind, my body image, my body image was so distorted that I mentally shifted. My brain was telling me because I had not counted the last two days that I had gained weight. Mm -hmm. And I think that all of it comes down to we're never taught or given time to develop self-trust. And so we are always looking for that outer thing to latch on to these external rules, right? Like you did, they had the Weight Watchers, which was the point. Then it was the macros, which was counting macros. And these are all external things. And it's so hard to leave that behind and start to understand that your body, the thing you've been fighting your entire life, actually provides cues to let you know what you need, when you need it, and how much you need it. Mm-hmm. And going back to the macro things, I, I just want to encourage the way that I, I do things, which is different than other dietitians or different counselors, is that I think you can have an awareness about calories, protein, fat, all that stuff. It's good to get an education, but using that education as a way to manipulate what and how much you eat is very different than using that as a way to flourish and feel good. Yeah, that is one thing I want us to touch on later is outer wisdom Yeah, and and knowing that. And we will dial in because I think that that's important. But another thing I want to touch on since we're talking about different kinds of plans is there was a time in my life where I had to eat, quote unquote, clean all the time. And I had to have, it was, I was a very, on a very strict list of foods that I could and couldn't have. And what I didn't realize at the time, because there wasn't a name for it, you touch on this too. I feel like Lisa and I's stories are going to organically come out through each episode, but Lisa's about to share her actual contained story, just like a lot of the guests that are going to be coming on and sharing. Lisa and I are going to do that, Um, but it's orthorexia. And I think that that's an important topic to touch on because you may not even know exactly what that is and if you fall in that category. So we do have someone coming on and we'll get into that with an expert, an eating disorder therapist, Mm -hmm. Jennifer Rollins will be on. So uh, before we get to that though, Lisa, I would love for you to share your story. Okay. I can actually remember one of the final times that eating food and thoughts about my body wasn't so complicated. Growing up, people always complimented me for how much I could eat. I had an appetite, I liked food, and I was so lucky that I could eat, quote, what I wanted and not worry about my body size changing, unquote. Some of my earliest memories involve adults commenting about my thin frame and how blessed I was to have good genes and a fast metabolism. I didn't know what any of these words even meant at the time, but I started to notice that this was affecting my self-worth. 
While it made me feel pretty in that moment, it simultaneously sent a different message and instilled fear of gaining weight or my body changing. At the time, it was no big deal. I liked to eat and began to see being thin coupled with eating as my superpower. This was a way to get positive attention. During a summer field hockey camp in eighth grade, I willingly entered a Krispy Kreme donut eating competition. I showed off how many donuts I could eat, which was like five or six. And then I rode the bus home feeling some sort of pride for winning this silly competition. I remember this experience so vividly because of the stark difference in my thoughts just one year later. The summer before going into ninth grade, I returned to the same exact camp, but everything had changed. Puberty had begun to hit, and while I still had a small frame, my body was starting to change, and that change terrified me. Every time the bus hit a pothole on the way to camp, I felt the fat on my stomach jingle, and I couldn't let it go. That summer, I put all of my energy into eating as little as I could, which some days was as little as a protein bar during this day of rigorous field hockey practice. This is how it began, with attempts to restrict. It never really worked because bodies need food, and I chalked up my eventual eating to my lack of willpower. Each day, I started over with my commitment to just not eat. But at the end of the day, I left feeling a sense of failure and fear for have eaten. Where I grew up, partaking in diet behavior was completely normalized, even if you weren't on a diet, even if you were thin. There wasn't a body type that was exempt from this type of behavior. We ate bagels, but only with the insides completely scooped out. We drank coffee, but only with skim milk. We drank soda, but only Diet Coke. We ate cookies, but only 100-calorie Oreo packs of cookies. A couple years later, while in college, I shifted from attempting restriction of total food to latching under food rules all under the guise of health. I was no longer restricting my total food intake. I was eating, eating multiple times a day, and I even went to the gym every single day for six months, a streak that I was proud of. My new identity formed. I was the healthy girl, and I liked this validation. I liked people coming to me with the questions. I liked feeling that I had something on everyone else. I felt special. I wasn't majoring in nutrition just yet, but it was the eventual goal. So I began to spend more and more time reading health magazines, perusing the shelves at health food stores, and gobbled up any information about nutrition that I could. Back then, no one was into health like they are now. Me cutting things out and only eating certain foods seemed more woo-woo than it seemed problematic. But my internal desire to stay thin was a gigantic presence in my life because I had an intense fear of gaining weight and identity that was completely fused to what I ate and what I didn't eat. The thoughts of food started to be all-consuming. I remember not even being able to go to sleep because I was thinking about what I'd eat for breakfast. I remember during breakfast thinking about what I'd be eating for lunch. I saw the red flags here and there. Deep down, and I mean really deep down, I knew something wasn't right. I was constantly eating alone when everybody else was going out to meals with friends. I was turning down plans that would involve unhealthy food, but I was blind to what the problem could be. After all, it felt like it was just me prioritizing my health. How could anything be wrong with that? The first therapist I saw, I didn't tell her I had dietary restrictions because at that time they didn't feel like restrictions. I genuinely loved all the food I was eating. Instead, I told her how thoughts of food consumed my mind and she chalked this up to being general anxiety. This made sense. I was eating food. I felt like I was eating enough food. So I didn't have a food problem. I had an anxiety problem. Yes, this I could understand. I could also address and handle this. Eventually, I went on to get my master's in nutrition and exercise at Columbia University. And as much as I love my degree and where it's taken me professionally and personally, studying to be a dietitian fueled the feeling that I had to look and eat a certain way. The food controls tightened, only now it's morphed into something called clean eating. 
and I knew deep down again that something was wrong. But without words like disordered eating or orthorexia existing or my knowledge of them, at least, I continued to believe that what I was doing was not problematic. Eventually, things fell into place almost organically and without force, and a lot of it has to do with practicing yoga, actually. I started going to yoga on my block because I hated the cold weather in New York and the place right near me offered a hot room to practice in. The more I went, the more I noticed the mental shifts. I started to go for my mind and not my body. And therefore, I started to see my body on all days. Prior to this, I'd frequently get myself into a binge and then be too full or feel too gross or too fat. These are things I would say to work out. But now I was showing up for my mind. And this meant I was seeing my body in the reflection of the mirror every day, and I was just sitting with it. I found myself naturally showing it love as I noticed normal folds, bulges, and my body looking like how a body should look. All of a sudden, I was feeling a love for myself, my being, and it was not based on what it looked like. I was no longer choosing foods based on how I wanted to look. I could listen, understand, and trust my body and the feedback it gave me. I exercised for my mind, not my body, and I kept taking mental note of these cognitive shifts and eventually knew that I had to bring this type of freedom to people. One word to describe my life now is abundant. Opportunities come out of nowhere, like Amy Brown finding me and this podcast series. This wouldn't have been possible if I continued to live in fear. Instead of fear, I've gained relationships. I've found my true sense of self-worth. I've developed self-trust. And I have a life that is better than anything that I could have dreamed of. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing your story. I know that reading it sometimes isn't easy. And each of you listening, you may have your own story that you need to write out one day. And maybe at the end of this series, you take the time to think of your story. And writing can be so therapeutic. That's what we've got going on in each episode of this series is stories from people. I'll be sharing mine on the next episode next Saturday. But later on in this episode, we have stories from two other people, just like you. Some people's stories, you'll notice some similarities. Some are not similar at all. You know, I think we have people in the spotlight, celebrities that are out there sharing their stories right now, which is super cool because Lisa and I started dreaming this up in December. And even since then, the last few months, it's been like, we've been able to send each other articles like, oh my gosh, did you see Taylor Swift's documentary, Miss Americana, she opens up about exactly what we're talking about. This area of like, I don't know, was she clinically diagnosed with some sort of eating disorder or did she just have times where she was depriving herself of food and got way too skinny? But she she shares in the documentary. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to watch it. It's really great. I'm a Taylor Swift fan. Even if you're not, though, you'll enjoy the documentary. And she just said that she has to not look at pictures of herself every day, even though she's someone that could easily be photographed every day, but there would be stuff that pops up of her that would then lead her to think she looked a certain way and she didn't like the way she looked or she looked too big or people would comment like, are you pregnant or something that would create some negative spiral of thoughts to where then she would not eat. And she said that she would have defended herself. Like if you would have commented on her body, she would have been like, nope. I'm eating, I'm working out. And she's like, yeah, I was working out all right. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. a lot, but I wasn't eating. And she would go on to do her tours and she would perform and she just wasn't feeling that great. And now that she's fueling her body and eating food and not concerned about being a double zero and loving her life as a size, I think she says 
six now, Mm -hmm. she goes out and does a tour performance and she gets off stage still full of energy and feeling good. And she's like, oh, interesting. This is what it should feel like. And now I get it. Not all of us are, none none of us are really, let's be honest. Unless Taylor Swift is listening to this, like we're not all on a stadium tour doing these massive nights where we do need that type of energy. But we do have days where we're not giving ourselves what our bodies need. And once you finally do, you realize like, oh, that's how I can sustain getting through a day. Like this is what life is supposed to feel like. And Lisa, it makes me think of a post you put up about coffee. Mm -hmm. And you were like, instead of reaching for caffeine or whatever that looks like for you, Maybe, do you need to reach for food? <laughs> yeah, like the three o'clock, everyone's so tired. It's like, it's, it's after way after lunch, it's before dinner. A snack would provide some energy. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we always reaching for energy-less substances? <laughs> right, when food is that, it's energy. And so that's what, you know, Taylor touched on in, in her documentary. And I think that was very powerful for a lot of girls to see, especially someone like Taylor, saying it, who when she was in it, we had no idea. And in fact, I mean, I guess I had noticed that she had gotten a little bit like her body had changed. But even looking now, you see where she was and then where she is now. And she just is Vibrant. so much happier and radiant. Radiant. And that's our is. word. And I want that joy for for everybody yeah. to to have that and to know that we need to stop trying to squeeze into whatever we think society says, and I feel for these people in the industry. You know, I just got done reading Jessica Simpson's book and, you know, she was vocal in the book about, you know, giving herself bruises, but trying to pinch her body fat at night in the mirror, looking at it because when she signed her record deal as a teenager, one of the first things her label said to her was that she needed to lose 15 pounds and she's already, was already a small person. And that just sent her on this, you know, years year long, years and years of stuff, of diet pills. And how can she fix her body and make it what it is not supposed to be? Demi Lovato is another celebrity out in the spotlight being very vocal and talking about it. And so I just think it's important. And I'm thankful that we've got people that have a huge platform like that that are talking about it. I mean, it makes my job certainly a lot easier. It pushes us light years ahead of where we'd ever be. Yeah, and it gives us- single. Uh, or interview or whatever they do. Yeah. It, it affirmed to me what we were doing with this and made me more excited about it for sure. And I feel like even with Jessica and Taylor and Demi, there were moments where they were reflecting on that person that they were at that time. And I wonder what they would say to that person. And so that's a piece of this that we wanted to be sure to include And so with each person that's sharing a story, like Lisa just shared her story, and then we've got the other real stories in mine, we're including, after the story, a letter to themselves, like just a 60-second, like one minute or less note to yourself. So that might be another thing that you do as you go through this series. If you want to write down your story, then take a minute to also write a letter to yourself, that self, like of what, what would you tell yourself then. So Lisa, with that said, do you want to get into your letter? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Dear younger Lisa, I'm proud of you. You've overcome a lot in your life and grown into the most aligned version of yourself. You continue to put in the work day after day, pausing in moments most would run from. 
having difficult conversations with others and yourself, and creating necessary boundaries to keep living your greatest power. If I could have helped you earlier, the one thing I would have taught you is how to self-soothe. There was so much going on in your life during your formative years that the outside world couldn't understand or even know about. The inordinate amount of pressure and secret keeping put more pressure on you than any teenage girl should experience. It only makes sense that you would try to control something amidst the chaos of all of that you couldn't control. Here's what I want you to remember. No matter what you experience in your life, you will always be on your own side. The most important relationship to foster is this one right here. Whenever you feel invalidated, inadequate, or unworthy, it's your job to pause, get quiet, re-regulate with all the self-soothing tools that you've built, and come back to living your best life as your highest self. An extraordinary life awaits ahead, full of purpose and helping others. Be sure to enjoy every moment. Oh, Lisa, I love that letter to yourself. I think that this is going to be good for people to hear, like you opening up and sharing your story and then your letter to yourself. Again, another thing that maybe y'all can do as you go through this series is think about your story. Think about what you would tell yourself too. And that can be an important part of your healing. And, you know, we're, we're going to be sharing more stories in this episode. But before we get to Claire and Andrea, two girls that we're going to do the same thing that Lisa just did. Um, we're going to talk to Jennifer Rollin. Let's get Jennifer on the phone right now. We are so excited to welcome Jennifer Rollin. She is an eating disorder therapist and founder of the Eating Disorder Center in Maryland. Welcome, Jennifer. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you on, especially since you can talk with us about eating disorder issues and topics and you're a therapist, you're the expert. And the first thing we'd love to touch on with you is orthorexia. Because I think for a long time, this didn't have a name. I know I personally had it, but I didn't realize that's what I was doing. And to myself and to my family and friends that I was hanging out with. Can you talk to us about what it is? Yeah. And I think it's so common for people to not know that they have it. And basically, orthorexia is an unhealthy obsession with so-called healthy eating. So what it can look like, just some of the main symptoms would be rigid food rules. So saying things like, I don't eat white bread, cutting out whole food groups for non-medical reasons. We also see social isolation. So starting to avoid events where the person can't get their like quote unquote healthy food, spending hours thinking about food, Googling recipes, and then this idea of purity and morality. So if I eat a certain way, then I'm a good person. But if I eat a different way, then I'm bad. Yes. And I, as someone who also experienced a version of orthorexia, you know, it didn't start like that. How does it start for most people in your practice or your experience? Sure. So I'm also recovered myself. And I first experienced orthorexic symptoms when my eating disorder emerged. And I see this with clients as well. How it usually starts is this idea of I want to be healthier. That's how it presents to the outside world. So typically people with orthorexia, unlike anorexia, they're usually very open about what they're eating, kind of posting the Instagram images of beautiful, like healthified foods, promoting this idea of health and wellness. But underneath that is an obsession and high levels of anxiety, as well as like this need for control. So I just want to be clear too, because there is a difference in wanting to put nourishing foods into your body and caring about that, but then being obsessive about it. I mean, how do, how do you tell the difference? Like if someone's listening right now, they're like, oh, shoot, I do care about like nutrients and food and my 
outer wisdom is telling me like this food is something that's going to provide a lot of healthy vitamins and minerals for my body and what it needs. But there's a difference. That's not what we're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. So it comes down to this idea of preference versus a rigid rule. So what I always say is there's nothing wrong with really liking kale, right? That's not unhealthy. But for somebody with orthorexia, it's this idea of I cannot break my food rules. And if I do, there's extreme anxiety. So it's a difference between I have a preference for eating this food. This I know it's going to give me nutrients. I've decided to have this meal because it looks good versus I'm eating this meal because these are my safe foods and anything else is bad. And if I eat anything else, you know, I'm going to feel terrible about myself or have to compensate or think about it all day. And anecdotally for myself, you know, it started off of I love healthy food. I love healthy food. But it was also really just a vice to control my food in a new way, in a way where other people wouldn't question it, that, you know, I was eating, but I was eating specific foods. So nobody would ever say, okay, she has an eating disorder. She doesn't eat. If anything, everybody would say she eats a lot because I was always eating, but always eating safe foods personally for me. Yeah. And that's so typical. And we might see things and something I did in my eating disorder, for instance, was I would bring my own food to cookouts in like a Tupperware and I'd be eating and it would appear quote unquote healthy, but it wasn't enough calories for my energy needs and it was very rigid. Yeah, I would say I could speak to that too. For my family, my dad, food is his love language and he would love to cook for us. And I think back on all the times where I used to just show up and not eat what he prepared because it wasn't on my list and and I could get away with it because I was like, well, dad, I'm a vegan gluten-free, you know, person now, <laughs> but I don't even really know why I put myself into that category. I think some of it did start because I, I was trying to get pregnant and I read a book that was all about detoxing and how you, what certain foods you could put into your body. But for me, it took it to the next level, but I had that as my excuse of, well, I'm eating this way because I'm trying to get pregnant. But I really, I liked the results I was seeing from it and it snowballed and snowballed to where I was no longer a... We began to fear the things that you cut out. Exactly. So you couldn't be flexible. And then if I let myself have whatever said food that I feared, then it was like, okay, I've gone and done this. So I better eat this food that is on my fear list for the rest of today and as much as I can, because tomorrow I'm never going to have it again. Yeah. And that's so common that like binge compulsive eating restrict cycle. It's incredibly common. And I think one thing you both pointed out was also how this eating disorder, I like to call it like the eating disorder that hides in plain sight, because it's often not visible to the outside eye. People think, oh, that person's just being healthy. And there's a lot of justifications, like you said, saying you're gluten-free, saying you're dairy-free, but secretly it's that obsession and that desire for control. And not to mention the applaud that comes with, oh, I wish I could be healthy like you or I could have the discipline like you where you're being applauded for this behavior that becomes your identity. Yes, I'm going to touch on that because you say your identity. Somehow I became this person without even really trying to be that person that people would come to for advice on what is the next thing I should be doing or how can I detox like ASAP? And I was like, how did I become this person? But I realized I became that person because it's all I talked about, (laughs) which I I probably would now find myself to be extremely annoying. If, but I mean, but it's 
it is something that a lot of people are interested in and they're always trying to find that next thing. So if you're a person that's up to speed on the next superfood, then, you know, of course it's what you're going to be talking about and people are going to ask you about. And to me, there was nothing satisfying about being that person. I think at the time I thought maybe there was, but looking back, I'm like, oh, that was just so miserable to be fixated on certain foods that were going to have all these magical powers because they were on my my list of approved things I could eat. And then it's so hard for people to let go of that identity too, for some people, because they do get so much praise from other people and it becomes part of who they are. And they're like, without this, who am I? The thing about orthorexia was that this was not a word that was well known. Um, I think it was officially created or termed, coined in the 90s, but we didn't hear about it until really now. And it's one of those words that I wish I knew about or I learned about in school because without it existing, I thought I was fine. I thought that, okay, I didn't have anorexia or bulimia personally, so therefore I was fine. And with the understanding that there's this gray area, which is disordered eating, which orthorexia falls under, I felt like I could have raised my hand and say, okay, I see that symptom in me. But without it being there, without a place to land, I I suffered for many years. Yeah, which is so tough and unfortunately so common. Again, it's just hard, I think, to identify that you have a problem when everyone around you is envious of what you're doing and maybe you're surrounding yourself by other people in diet culture, so it seems very normative. Jennifer, can you share with us the difference between eating disorder and disordered eating? Sure. So for me, the way that I define disordered eating is that you don't have a good relationship with food. Maybe you're following like these external diet rules, you're not listening to your body, you're casting judgment around certain foods as good or bad, perhaps you're not eating enough for your energy needs. And all of that can be really harmful. And I think people who struggle with disordered eating deserve to get care as much as people with eating disorders. For me, it crosses over into an eating disorder when that becomes your whole life. There's a big distinction between dieting where like that's one piece of your life and maybe it's an unpleasant piece of your life but it's a piece of your life. When it's an eating disorder, it starts to infiltrate every area of your life. And for many people at the height of their eating disorder, it's like every waking thought is about food or when can I get my next meal or when can I use this behavior? Maybe there's a mom that's listening or a family member or a best friend that's listening to this right now and they don't necessarily struggle with some of this, but someone close to them does. What advice do you have for people in their life? Like for me, I'm thinking of like, if I had a friend listening to this back when I was really like hyper-focused, like on every little thing that I was eating, say my best friend or my sister would be listening to us talk right now. And she might be like, oh my gosh, this is Amy. Like Amy needs to hear this. Like how, how can I help Amy? This is her. What is the best way to do it without you know, offending somebody or trying to make sure that you're there for them, you're giving them the best help. Like what, what does that person need? What did I need from someone when I was during that time? Yeah. So I think there's a few things. I think the first step is to express your concerns to that person and to make sure that you're pointing out the concerns about their behaviors and not about weight, because talking about the person's weight can be really triggering. And then we also know that People can have an eating disorder in any size body. They don't have to be thick thin in order to struggle. So saying, I love you, I care about you, I've noticed that when we go out to eat, you're ordering in a very disordered way or you're not wanting to go out to eat with me as much as you used to or you're constantly talking about superfoods. You know, and I wonder, 
you know, because I am so worried about you, would you be open to getting consultation with the therapist? And then if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. But I would really urge you to get some professional help just to, again, see if there's something going on to kind of get an assessment. And I would also add to be really careful not to make comments on that person's body and to also educate yourself and to educate the person as much as possible. So, you know, maybe sharing with them the link to our conversation or other books or podcasts talking about eating disorder behaviors as well. One of the hardest parts for me was when I noticed that my thoughts were all consuming and I went to see a therapist who was not an eating disorder therapist. She told me that I had anxiety and that made so much sense to me because of course I had anxiety, but because all I was eating healthy, I d- couldn't understand that I had a, re- a problem with food. And I almost wished that that therapist had said to me, you have anxiety because of your relationship to food, not you have anxiety, period. Because we danced around it. I danced around it for a long time. And I was looking for professional help for someone to tell me something was wrong. And she didn't. Yeah. And I think that's why, like another caveat of that would be to ask when they do seek professional help, that they seek help from an eating disorder specialist, not just somebody because I don't know if you guys are familiar with psychology today to find a therapist, but nowadays therapists can check a box and say they specialize in something on psychology today. So some have like 30 specialties listed and you want to actually like, I encourage people to interview the therapist on the phone and say, what percentage of your caseload is people with eating disorders? Like what is your experience to really get an understanding? Because unfortunately a lot of therapists say they do everything. And I'm somebody who doesn't believe that you can effectively have every specialization, you know, like I know what areas I'm great at and I know what I don't know. Would you say that orthorexia or disordered eating always comes down to the desire to be thin? Definitely. I don't think so. I think with orthorexia, you can have people who want to lose weight as part of that illness, but you also can have people who don't have body image issues where, for instance, I've had clients in the past who've lost family members to cancer. And so their fear around food is that you know, this idea of mortality. And if I eat in a certain way, then they believe I can protect myself from that, right? So I think even though thinness can be the way that some of the symptoms sometimes manifest with an eating disorder, usually there's a lot of underlying core issues, which can include past trauma, low self-worth, perfectionism, you know, anxiety, depression, a mood disorder. So the way I describe it to clients is if we think about an iceberg, Often the desire to be thin is the top of the iceberg that's peeking out. But underneath the surface is all of those other issues that I was just talking about that play into that. And how do you ration, though, with somebody that says my blah, blah, blah died of cancer and so I need to eat all these superfoods only and I can't have gluten and I can't have this and I can't have that because those are all, you know, because they read that they're inflammatory. I'm not saying these as factual information for our listeners, just things that I hear a lot as a dietitian. Right. And I think, I mean, I have so many arguments around that. I don't even know where to start, but I think the main two that I would say are A, like really looking at the conclusive research And B, I mean, we know a lot of research is tainted or like facts on certain websites by diet culture. So looking at the impact of having anxiety around food on your health, because that spikes cortisol and can actually be very unhealthy. And then two, Harvard did a study um, for 100 years where they studied men and they looked at mortality rates. And they found that people with the strongest social connections actually was the biggest predictor of longevity. And people who are obsessed with quote-unquote health foods, often that impacts their social relationships. 
because in our culture, right, like we all want to go out and get ice cream with friends. So I would actually argue that isolating and sitting alone in your room, eating your salad is far more unhealthy than going out to eat in a relaxed environment with friends. You know, we have real people sharing their stories as part of this series and also in that doing letters to themselves. And I think that a lot of people with this in their past, if they are writing back to the person they were then, so many letters would include like, I'm sorry that you missed out on going to dinner with your friends. I'm sorry that you would make up an excuse to skip the party because you were scared of what food was going to be served or if there was going to be cake. I know that that's certainly the case for me. Like I think back over the years of college to adulthood, like past that into my career where I legit skipped out on social functions because I couldn't control the food. And even if I was personally showing up to them mentally, I was checked out because let's say I ate before I got there to control the situation. I was My mind was still running rampant around, oh my God, I want to eat this. Can I eat this? Can I eat this? And then I'd eat it and then I'd go into the guilt cycle. So it's like, you're just can't be present even if you're showing up. Mm-hmm. I, I love that you touched on that, Jennifer, the, the study of the social aspect and how that can be so good for us. And probably the anxiety that I cause around, I mean, I'm that person with the cancer thing too. Yes, I had the healthy eating because I was trying to get pregnant, but my mom also died of cancer in 2014. My dad is in remission right now. So I feel like I also had that to latch on to, to use as an excuse of why I was eating a certain way. But again, it created so much anxiety and stress for me that stress caused more damage than, than the food. Right. And I think that's so common. And it, again, eating disorders and disordered eating are super complex. I don't want to say it boils down to one thing, but when we have the loss of a loved one, you know, from an illness, that feels incredibly out of control and uncertain and scary. And so if I'm sold this idea and this lie through diet culture that these foods will protect me, it makes perfect sense why I would latch onto that as a means of control. But again, we know it just serves to create more problems and that, you know, no matter how much kale we all eat, we're all going to, at the end of the day, we're all not going to live forever. So I think diet culture really preys on all of our fears about mortality and, again, latching onto something to try to control after going through situations that feel very scary and out of control. But the problem is the more we buy into the behaviors, the more we're controlled by them. Yeah. And diet culture latches onto this, whatever we've been told is what our bodies are supposed to look like. Any generationally it changes, but there's like, okay, we're told from magazine covers to all kinds of things to celebrities, they feel this certain pressure to look a certain way. And then that's what we see. And I feel like then we're all struggling and it's like a rat race trying to, what can we do and trying to keep up and figure out how, how is our body supposed to look like that? Or how do we get our body that way? But why has that been decided? Like who decided that's how bodies look? Our bodies <laughs> should look how we were born to look and we're all different shapes and sizes. And we're all beautiful. Like that's just so, I'm sure it's frustrating for you of people that come in and are talking to you about, is that a topic that comes up of like the standards that we have to live up to and what's out there and, and what's your response to that? It comes up all the time with clients. And I think it's far worse now because of Instagram and Facetune and all these options that are out there. But I think at the end of the day, we all want to be loved and we all want to be accepted. And I think that diet culture is 
I think now it's at the $70 billion industry, and they wouldn't make any money if we all woke up and said, I, I like myself, I love myself, right? So we have these big companies that prey on our insecurities in order to sell products because that's how they make their money. And then I also think there's a big element of patriarchy in all of this because if women are sitting around counting calories, trying to shrink our bodies, then we're not enacting world change that we could be enacting. Like I feel like that could be an entirely separate episode, <laughs> so I don't even want to yeah. dive into that too far. Well, so you mentioned waking up and loving your body. Let's talk about self-talk and negative self-talk in particular. And I feel, we'll just use, since you brought up social media and Instagram, like it gets hard. Like you can be scrolling through and like see a picture of someone and then just be like, oh, wow, dang, look at them. Like, why, why am I so fat? Or however you, whatever that negative thought is that instantly comes in because you saw something or you walk by and you look in the mirror and you just instantly say something negative about yourself. How are you seeing how we talk to ourselves affect people? I mean, I think our internal dialogue can be so powerful and often it's super negative and critical in a way that we wouldn't talk to other people that we care about. And so I start by having people be mindful of their thoughts because I think we go about our day and we have something like 70,000 thoughts a day. And many of them are similar thoughts that we've had before that are on loop. And so I think the first step is just being mindful and aware of what we're telling ourselves and that we're not our thoughts, right? Those are stories that our mind makes up. And then the second step is thinking rather than asking yourself, is that thought true or not? I have clients ask, is this thought helpful in terms of getting me in the direction of a full and meaningful life. And if the answer is it's not helpful, what I like to have people do is practice either coming up with a mantra, a positive self-statement that they say back to themselves repeatedly, or really practicing that like self-compassionate voice. So thinking about what you would tell a child, your best friend, somebody that you loved who said that statement. And the more you practice the positive self-talk, the more automatic and natural it can become over time. Thank you for that. Jennifer, we really appreciate you coming on. Actually, the next couple of stories that we're going to share in this episode are girls that got vulnerable and negative self-talk plays a role in, in their story. So I think we'll dive into their stories, but appreciate you coming on so much. And if people want to follow you on Instagram, you are at Jennifer underscore Rollin. And I have started following you, I don't know, in the last month or two. And I just want to tell you, I've so enjoyed your posts. They've been a huge encouragement to me. And I know that they will be to a lot of other people if they aren't already following you. And I'm just pulling up one that you put up. Actually, it's like three days ago when we're recording this, but this is going to air in April. But you put, your mom had slim fast. You have keto. Your daughter deserves freedom. Ditch the diet life. And as a mom of a 12-year-old girl who all I want her to know is that she is beautiful no matter what, like, yes, I want her to have that freedom. And thankfully, she is showing no signs of anything, but I just have to pray that that continues. But I liked that post because, yeah, every generation is going to have their thing. But I think if we continue this fight and you keep doing what you're doing, Jennifer, because it's important work our daughters can have freedom. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on and for spotlighting this issue because I think it's so important. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Right now, let's hear from Claire. We've got her story and then her letter to herself. Hey, I'm Claire. I remember being 10 years old when I first heard the phrase, I have to lose weight. 
My best friend's older sister was talking about how she needed to be thinner to be liked by a boy. And I was 13 when I first thought I have to lose weight because I wanted to be popular in school and noticed by boys. And I had decided that certain parts of my body, like my belly and thighs, were not good enough. Within two years, not good enough morphed into gross, disgusting, fat and ugly. And those four words would determine how I looked at and thought of my body for the next decade of my life. Throughout puberty and my 20s, I would at times cut out carbs, try food combining diets, cling to labels like low fat, go on juice cleanses or deny myself food altogether because I wanted to make sure I was truly hungry, meaning my stomach was actually hurting before I ate. And it felt like I was on this chase, looking for this one thing, this one diet that would fix me. But the two scariest thoughts I remember having were when I was withholding food as a punishment and when I thought about throwing up after big meals. So the voice in my head said things like, someone who hasn't worked out doesn't get to eat. Or, go on, try it just once, no one needs to know. I was self-conscious about what and how much I ate, even around my family. I would never wear a bikini because I legitimately thought no one wants to see that. So losing weight and being thin became equivalent to being happy and accepted and food turned into this exhausting and threatening thing which was always holding me back. I was 28 when I went on a month-long restrictive diet where I cut out almost everything and the idea was to figure out food sensitivities but after four weeks I decided not to reintroduce certain foods because I didn't want to put on weight again. And six weeks later I ended up binging on pasta and bread and within two months I had gained back everything I had lost and more. And I remember thinking there has to be an easier way. And that's when I stumbled across Lisa's course for the noise. And at first I was skeptical. Is this gonna work? Is it worth my money? But I cannot stress enough how fundamentally for the noise changed my life. Because I had never learned to listen to my body's inner wisdom. And what I had thought of my body's trying to manipulate me were actually requests for help and trust. My life before Fuck the Noise was heavy. I was going through the motions, always worrying about food and what my body looked like. And the thing is, people couldn't tell how self-abusive the thoughts in my head were. Today, I'd say my life is lighter. There's room to breathe. And sure, I still have bad days where I think my belly is gross and someone's belly is still the first thing I look at. I Sometimes I overeat. I don't always surrender to my body. I sometimes worry if people judge what and how much I eat. But after having had these thoughts for more than half of my life, I can't expect for them to just disappear. So Fork the Noise taught me how to identify noise without being affected by it. Because the truth is, I don't have time for that. One of my favorite phrases of Lisa's is, you ate too much, you didn't kill someone. When I move my body nowadays, it's because I want to connect with myself. And I learned that the point is not to live blissfully ever after, but to work on and with yourself for the rest of your life. Whatever might be challenging now, might not be in six months, could be again in two years. Everything is always in motion, but when I tried to stick to a diet and punish myself, I was stuck. 
There was no headspace to think about anything else. And today I can ask myself, what would bring me joy? And I can also stay present when these negative thoughts arise. Hey gorgeous, so I've got a couple of things I'd like to tell you, hoping they'll help you. Firstly, when you feel like there is something wrong with you because you don't enjoy what everybody else is into, that it's somehow your fault, don't. There is nothing wrong with you. Secondly, when you feel lost and lonely and like you have this huge weight pressing down on you, I want you to remember that I am always, always with you. Thirdly, whatever lights you up, I want you to go after that and do it shamelessly. Because I promise you, life is so much bigger and you are so much stronger than looking at a piece of bread and only feeling fear. And lastly, even if none of the above makes sense, there's one thing I need you to take away from this. You're going to be okay. Okay, now let's do this with Andrea. She is going to share her story and her letter to herself. Hi, my name is Andrea, and I am so honored that Amy has asked me to be a part of this, and I hope that my story will help you guys. My story starts when I was around seven. That's when I started to hate my body, seven years old. No one, but especially a seven-year-old, should focus on their body size. I grew up hearing adults tell me how much bigger I was than my mom, how I must be shaped like my dad. And to me, at seven, my dad looked huge. I didn't really want to be compared to this giant man with a mustache. I wanted to be compared to my little pretty tiny mom. And I started to feel embarrassed about my size. From then on, I had anxiety over my size. I would hear comments about how much I was eating. I was embarrassed to wear midriff bearing dance recital costumes. I remember on multiple occasions just crying and crying over how I looked. I would cry looking at myself in the mirror wearing these dance costumes. Every year, I would hate putting on my recital costumes. I hated the way I looked in them. I didn't want to be in front of people in this costume. I didn't want people to see me in it. And I definitely didn't want to stand next to the other girls. I felt like I looked horrible. And I just was so uncomfortable with who I was. This went on until around 15. That's when I turned not only just hating my body, but I also turned it into depriving myself of food. I would compare myself to models, actresses, girls I took dance class with. Any girl that crossed my path, I would compare myself to them. And I always felt that I fell very short to every single girl. Dealing with other normal teenage drama, I took control by starving myself. I noticed I actually got attention the skinnier I got. I became addicted to that attention. I noticed the thinner I got, the more attention I got. And that truly breaks my heart now thinking about it. I would deprive myself, weigh myself obsessively, and body check myself every single time I passed the certain mirror in my bathroom. I missed out on fun, carefree teenage years that even flew into college. Times that I should be having just fun with my friends and just enjoying being young and stress-free, they were taken away because I was too consumed with outward appearances. Times when your child or a teenager, or even in college, you shouldn't be focused on outward appearances or getting approval from other people. You shouldn't be stressed or worried or feeling less than. You should really never feel like that 
anyways at any age, but especially as a child. And I feel like that eating disorder took a lot of really fun, carefree years away from me. It really shouldn't be a thought in any person's mind, but especially as a child and a teenager. I missed out on enjoying my youth because I was too focused on unimportant things, and I missed out on so many opportunities, and I didn't focus on my dreams or my passions because I was too focused on outward appearances. The sad truth is, it was never enough. I was chasing something that I would never achieve. It's a really dark and lonely feeling, and it's exhausting never giving yourself a break or feeding yourself positive words. It's a vicious cycle of never being enough. I focused on the wrong things for so long, and it took me a really long time to get out of my own head. Many years, actually. I still feel like I'm recovering and giving myself permission to give myself compliments and take credit for things that I deserve. It took a long, long time. But I realized I am absolutely different from every other person out there, and that's what makes me beautiful. You being your truest, most authentic self makes you most beautiful. When you find and follow your dreams and put yourself out there, that's what makes you feel beautiful. When you empower yourself and others, when you put that time and effort into what ignites your fire, you don't have time to pick yourself apart and focus on the outward appearances. It shuts off the noise inside your head because you're too focused on bigger, more important things. You have to empower yourself to find something bigger than that noise. And to silence that noise is so rewarding. Once you realize you can live without that constant banter inside your head of never being good enough or being so mad at yourself for eating or never look, going to look a certain way, you will never want that noise to take up any more of your time. You wanna help others and never let them waste another second of being unhappy with themselves. You'll start to notice that when you encourage and inspire others and when you share your true gifts, that's what's really going to make you feel beautiful and feel good and actually feel important. Sharing your light will light up others and that's what's more important than any compliment or approval from anybody else. The key to get approval is get approval from yourself and that's where you can truly move forward. Accept yourself for everything that you are and own it and love it. Here's the letter to myself. Dear 16-year-old Andrea, I'm sorry for taking away your youth. I'm sorry for never stopping and realizing what an amazing person you were. Not only were you kind, thoughtful, and sweet, but you were beautiful. Everything you wanted to be, you were. And you never gave yourself credit for that. If I could change one thing, I would remind myself that it's not all about looks. It's about how you make people feel, and that's what really counts. But giving yourself kind words is never a bad thing. I can see clearly now that you just needed a reminder that there is not one standard of beauty. Being yourself and being confident in who you are and your unique qualities is what's going to get you far in life. Own them. Be proud and happy of yourself and find and follow your passions. That's where you'll find your purpose. My younger self would be proud that my goal and passion in life is to help women see how beautiful and amazing they really are. I get to empower women and encourage them to love themselves daily. That's my job. And I'm so excited that I get to do that. I was strong and courageous enough to follow my dreams, speak my truth, and hopefully help others. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode, Lisa, but high five. 
first episode done. We've got three more to go. And in episode two, I'll be sharing my story. And then again, we've got other stories from people and then other experts coming on. And we would love to interact with y'all on Instagram. I'm at Radio Amy. Uh, Lisa is at The The Well Necessities. So you can find us on there. Let us know you're listening. Oh, do we have a hashtag? Should we come I guess up? put it on your story with hashtag outweigh if you think someone else would benefit from this. Yeah, if you want to screenshot it and share it, I think that this is going to be something that'll be a good tool for people. So if you know someone that might want to hear this or might need to hear it, but that has no way of knowing that we're doing it, then spread the word. Post it online. We would appreciate it. And tag us. Hashtag outweigh or another way I see things too is four things with Amy Brown. I know it's under that, but this isn't my traditional four things layout, but we just appreciate y'all so much uh, being here with us. I think we think this is important and we're doing it for you and for us. And my future self, I think is going to have to go back and listen to this one day. Maybe I, I never know when I might need to go back and hear Um, some of the interviews that we're doing or some of the stories that are being told to be reminded that I'm not alone. And that's why we're doing it. We don't want you to feel alone ever. And we're going to kind of leave you each episode with something you can take with yourself to work on, like your homework until the next episode. And Lisa created a worksheet that she's going to talk to you about. Yeah. So we thought it'd be a great way to get to know your own inner critic. The first thing we need to do to detach from it is to start to notice it. So you can go to forkthenoise.com forward slash inner critic, and there'll be a worksheet there where you get to know what I call the devil voice and get to know your goddess voice and how you can start to tap into a little bit more goddess and a little bit less devil. Yes. Because at the beginning of this episode, we talked about how language matters and it's important. So that is and it how all you starts with what right. you say to yourself. It's what you say to yourself. It's not just what you say to other people, but it's what you say to yourself. So definitely go check out that worksheet and complete your homework <laughs> before you come back to next Saturday's episode. Thank you for being here and um, we'll see you next week. Hey guys, it's just Amy here at the end and that's a wrap on episode one, but I just wanted to hop on here myself. Lisa and I are not together. We were together around March 10th when we recorded this episode one. Well, actually all the episodes you're going to hear, we recorded them together because she flew in town and we just had to knock everything out while she was here. And COVID-19 coronavirus situation was not then what it is now. It's early April and a lot of us are completely confined to our houses and we're trying to stay home and stay healthy and protect those around us that we love or even just protect those that we don't even know. I mean, that's the point of staying home. But for a lot of you, I just wanted to hop on here because I know that this is a very unsettling time. There's some anxiety. If you are in some sort of recovery or dealing with food issues or you're not able to Go to your gym that you love to go to every day so you're not getting the workouts in. You maybe had to buy extra food to keep in the house and that makes you nervous because, yeah, you're around it. And then are you going to eat it? Are you going to not eat it? And just there can be all these issues surrounding food right now. I know for a lot of people, I'm seeing that online. So since Jennifer Rowland was our guest today, I thought I would pull up something that I saw her post on Instagram a couple of weeks ago. And she put a little thing up 
called COVID-19 ED Recovery Reminders. First, it says to be kind to yourself if you're struggling right now. Quarantine can be highly triggering for people with eating disorders, and no one was anticipating we'd be in the middle of a pandemic. Weight gain is not something that you need to fear. If it happens, it happens. Spoiler, all that means is you've gained weight, nothing else. But try not to blame your body for any shifts that may occur. Our bodies will change and shift many times throughout our lives, and this is okay. You've been brainwashed to believe otherwise. And then lastly, she said, reach out for help. No one should have to struggle alone. Now is as good a time as ever. So I just... Thought I would share that with y'all because I didn't want our episodes to be disconnected from what is happening right now and what you might be struggling with that you weren't a month ago. And I know for me, I've had some moments where I'm eating more because I'm nervous or anxious and I'm just trying to roll with it. I'm trying to put myself on more of a schedule, but if I don't get a workout in, it's not the end of the world. But for me, it's more about a mental thing than ever right now. It's not about trying to make my body look a certain way. It's just knowing that working out is something that is self-maintenance for me. And it it just, it's good for sanity. In a lot of these people that we're having on in this series, if you start following them on Instagram, you're going to get some good wisdom for them, especially as we try to navigate through a pandemic. It's just crazy. Who would have thought we would have been here right now? I mean, certainly probably not any of us. doesn't say not me, but probably not you either. And to all you moms out there, if you happen to be a mom listening to this and you're homeschooling your kids, God bless you because I am on the struggle bus for sure. And I just want you to know that you are not alone. And if you're having freak out moments, it's totally normal. If you have yelled at your kids, it's okay. Just go to them later and apologize. Like you are not a bad parent. I mean, I guess I should say, if we've got any dads listening too, I shouldn't just assume it's all women here, but you're not a bad person. You're not a bad parent. We're all just going through a lot right now. Thank y'all so much for listening to episode one. A big thank you to Lisa and Claire and Andrea for sharing their stories. Thank you, Jennifer Rollin, for being our expert today. And then I got a shout out to Houston, who helped with editing of this podcast, and Sam, who did the amazing theme, the intro. She did such a great job. And uh, yeah, we'll see y'all next week for episode two next Saturday. Bye. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.